Sherb Alpern, the T1 of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly appearance is Fangraphs Managing Editor Dave Cameron. During his appearance this week, as all those other weeks, Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball. In the wake of Sunday's All-Star selections, the sort of baseball Dave Cameron analyzes specifically is the All-Star sort of baseball. Dave Cameron has assigned himself to be manager of the AL All-Star team. In fact, not the AL All-Star team as selected by the fans and players, but the sort selected by himself. He has named Fangraphs contributor Wendy Thurm to be manager of the NL version of the All-Star team. Again, one of her own selection. And both authors have written pieces for Fangraphs on Monday discussing how they would deploy all of the members of those respective rosters. Essentially, what we look at today is how strategy in a baseball game is different if the only requirement is to win that one single game, as opposed to the highest percentage of 162 games over the course of the season. The listener will note also two things. Firstly, while at certain points in the following recording it sounds as though Dave Cameron suffers from phone connectivity issues, in fact what's happening is that owing to the heat and humidity of the American South where he lives, his processors freeze up briefly. Scary that. Scary. Uh, and secondly, uh, owing to the time of year, that is July 4th, etc., podcast episodes will be less frequent over the next week and a half. That is, over the next week and a half, around July 4th, following week, podcast episodes will be less frequent. Dry your eyes. However, they will return in full force come the middle of July. In any case, without any more of this ado, let us go to this edition of Fangraphs Audio with Dave Cameron right now. Yeah, so that's the thing you saw. And right, I was uh, I was playing ping pong. I was playing ping pong with the great Rob Nyer. Ah, uh, yeah. Have you ever played ping pong with the awful Rob Nyer? No, I have not. But um, I don't often. I would never say the awful Rob Nyer. I would never put those words together. And the the same Rob Nyer, who it should be said, uh, slept on my couch last night. Oh man, poor guy. Yeah, yeah. And I should also note that if there's any ambient noise, um, I don't know if you hear any. Um, there is, uh, it's because it's very hot uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, and there are a number of fans going on in the background. Yeah, it's like uh, 700 degrees here, too. The uh, coast is terrible. Right, yes, and in fact, uh, it should be mentioned that you live um, in the southeast, and therefore it's probably even worse there, so that's fine. Yeah, this weekend I went uh, car shopping, uh, replacing my wife's very old car, and uh, we decided that on 106-degree days, we should go sit in cars with black interiors that hadn't had the air conditioning running for days on end. Yeah. Uh, that was maybe the worst call I've ever made. Just one of, another one of your, well, I would say another one of your poor life decisions. You'd say maybe it's the worst. I don't know. It, it was up there. It's the uh, top five for sure. Okay. Uh, now, listen. I'm looking at, um, I want to tell you, Cameron, these all-star teams were announced, and I'm, a- I'm irate. I am outraged. Yeah. As you should be. I'm, Any good stat, it is. I'm, 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 I'm incensed. No, I really don't care at all. I don't care at all. But, but you, uh, I guess uh, what you've done is you, and I think in tandem with Wendy Thurm, uh, you've each taken a league, and you've, um, w- with the idea that we're supposed to, we're supposed to believe, and at some level it's true, 
uh, the the All Star game does have some kind of effect, right? Uh, yes. Now, Bud Selig has added a uh, uh, totally random clause where the uh, winner of the league gets home field advantage in the World Series, which is ridiculous and idiotic. The winner of the game gets home field advantage in the World Series, right? Um, and I, I am going to suggest neither that it's ridiculous um, or idiotic. I would just I will just say that again, I don't really care. But the point is that. That, that, that in theory it should work. No, how about this? If we take two evenly matched teams, um, Cameron, and we both we put them both in the World Series, how often will the the team with home field advantage win that? Well, I think the home field advantage split is something like 52-48 or 53-47 or something. So home field advantage is not nearly as big in some other league. Um, so it's not something that's going to determine the World Series. It's just a really you know, kind of silly way to figure it out. Okay. So would that lead to, so we would say like over like uh, a thousand tests or a million tests um, that, because I guess in theory, like the, the teams would split the first three games, right? And then the home team, the team with home field advantage wouldn't that would win that last game 52 or 53% of the time. Right. I mean, assuming they're equally matched, you know, the home field advantage goes to the, you know, will essentially just decide, uh, three extra games out of 100. So, you know, if it gets to Game 7 and if the teams are equally matched, uh, then there's a 3% shift one way or the other or something in that range. Does it affect revenue, or, or do those teams share the revenue? The playoffs are all equally dependent. Uh, you know, obviously getting to have your fans get an extra game and, you know, get to come to a playoff atmosphere can't be bad for you and uh, can give your fans a bit of a reward. And uh, I think you'd certainly rather uh, have the in your part. But the playoff stuff is all predetermined and divided up uh, by the CBA. Right, and then and so is that's also what we mean. Uh, there are playoff shares, is that right? I've seen that sometimes. Yeah, right. Well, the players take player share, so you know basically the contracts the players get are just for the regular season. So if you get to the playoffs, it's kind of considered overtime, and they get uh, rewarded accordingly uh, based on you know how far they go and uh, you know what team they're on and all that. Okay. So, so we have to say that that there are some advantages uh, to having home field um, in terms of actually winning and losing. It doesn't make the hugest of differences, um, but it, it's there. And then uh, beyond that, it does not necessarily make any immediate differences in terms of revenue. Uh, but there could also be sort of uh, secondary secondary results from that secondary benefits. Right. I mean, I think, like, the teams that uh, get the home field, they, I mean, I'm pretty sure they get to keep the consent. You know, so they probably make a little bit more money, but it's not a drastic difference. The gate receipts are split. Obviously, the TV money, they don't get, you know, extra from. So it's a small revenue bump. Okay. Now, we have, with all that as background, we still have a game. It's a single game that you're trying to win, which is not something you see yeah. uh, with great frequency in baseball. I guess, you know, if it's the, you know, if it's a, potential elimination game in the playoffs, really, um, or like a game 162 or 163 situation. Like, you know, we saw a couple of those last year. So, But over the course yep. of a baseball season starting, you know, from the beginning of April to the end of the playoffs, you see maybe four or five of them a year? Right, not, not a lot. Right. Um, but this is one example of it, and I guess it's unique in the sense that, well, in the sense you have 35 players on your roster as opposed to the usual 25, so you could even perform some even, I guess, uh, more ornate uh, 
matchup gymnastics, if you want. Yeah, right. The regular All-Star game, you have these crazy expanded rosters, and, you know, I mean, it's just kind of a showcase. In, in our little uh, exercise this morning, we did away with that and just went with 25-man rosters because, you know, the idea was if you had to win one game that counted, we wouldn't just throw out the rules of baseball. We would say, okay, you know, you bring 25, I bring 25, and let's beat each other. Okay, so so what is the thing that changes most? What is the thing that's most different about trying to win one specific game uh, than, than trying to win one game out of, you know, 162? Uh, probably the way you handle your pitching staff. So, uh, you know, I think both Wendy and I looked at it and said, there's no reason to ask a starting pitcher to go deep into the game. In the All-Star game, they don't either, but it's kind of a parade of starting pitchers, you know, one after another, guys who throw a complete inning, and they come out and they, you know, for the first six or seven getting it's working. Uh, well, we wouldn't do that at all. I mean, in my post, I said, I'm going to ask Justin Berlander to get, you know, face 18 batters and get as many outs as he can. So that might be four innings, it might be six innings. Uh, it's probably not going to be six against the NL lineup, but, you know, most likely it's going to be three or four. Uh, and then I'm going to go with a parade of relievers, and I'm going to start matching up based on handedness as much as possible. Okay, so you're saying you're asking for Lander to go through 18. That's that's twice through the lineup. That's the that's the logic. Yeah, I mean, if if you look at Verlander's splits, there's not a huge difference first and second time through the order. We know that for most pitchers there is. Uh, Verlander's a guy who you know maintains his velocity pretty well, so he's a guy that I'm okay with letting guys face a second time in the game. But you know, basically the old he's probably the only guy in baseball I would let. Uh, face someone twice in a game in this kind of situation. Okay, right, all right, and you have so you have Verlander doing that, and we can get to Wendy's version of that in a second. Um, but it's a uh, you know, it's a similar theory, I guess, if not a, if, if different personnel. Um, so you have, and then you go to relief pitchers, and then what's happening with that? How like how many batters will each of those pitchers face? Yeah, I mean, it kind of depends a little bit on the situation of the game. So, I mean, I have David Price as my uh, first high-leverage lefty. Uh, I have him basically being the first guy out of the bullpen because I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to get from, uh, you know, Verlander. If he gets into the second inning, and all of a sudden Ryan Braun and John Carlos Stanton and some of these guys are teeing off on him, and I feel like I need to go to the bullpen early, I want to have a guy who I can bring in and still get some innings from. So I didn't want to really go as, you know, one of my situational matchup lefties in that situation. Uh, so Price is my lefty out of the bullpen to kind of get that bridge from the early innings to the middle innings or even the middle innings to the later innings, depending on how far Verlander goes. So if Verlander goes four, maybe I'm asking Price to go two. If Verlander only goes two, maybe I'm asking Price to go three. Um, but basically, I'm not going to ask Price to face more than nine batters. Uh, he's going to try and get through the order once, and then I'm going to get him out of there. Okay. Uh, and so now we're, uh, now what, what inning are we in approximately? Well, I mean, it depends on the score, right? We could be in the fifth, we could be in the seventh. I mean, it, you know, it's hard to say. Uh, in this kind of situation where you've got really good pitching, you might expect it to be low scoring, but they've got Joey Votto and, you know, Ryan Braun and uh, Andrew McCutcheon, and they've got some guys who can swing the sticks. So, you know, I, I would anticipate that it would be a lower scoring game, but for all I know, it could be 11-8 to 8 in the third inning, and I could be blowing through my bullpen. So uh, if things were going well, I think that my hope would be that Price and Verlander would get me through six. Uh, and then I could go seven, eight, nine with uh, my matchup guys, starting off with Raphael Soriano against righties, and then you know I have Chris Sale and Charlie Furbush against lefties, and then I've got Octavio Dotel uh, to come back against righties, and uh, David Robertson can get anybody out, and I've got Felix sitting down in the bullpen. So you know if if I can get six innings from uh, Rolander and Price, I feel pretty good about uh, having eight pitchers to go to the last three. Right now, you, now two names that uh, may surprise people. 
um, in your uh, among your bullpen are uh, Charlie Furbush, a left-hander now with your Seattle Mariners, and also Brian Villarreal, who I believe is a, a setup man for the Detroit Tigers. Correct. And and uh, the logic for those is it just because they're um, they are uh, excellent against same-handed batters. I mean, that's, they, you know, I think at this point, there's certainly good relievers I left off. I know a few commenters were noting that Fernando Rodney and Joe Nathan aren't on the squad, just the fact they're having amazing years. But both of them are really good against opposite-handed batters, and I just can't see any situation where I'm going to let Joey Votto swing the bat against a right-handed pitcher, even a really good right-handed pitcher in a high-leverage situation. There's just no way I'm going to do that uh, based on the fact that there are pitchers out there who can be you know, right on right or left on left and devastating from that side. And we know that those premium hitters, Braun and Votto and this guy, you know, have their own platoon splits where they do better against opposite-handed pitchers as well. So um, from my perspective, it just didn't make any sense to have, you know, uh, right on left or, or left on right uh, pitching matchups if I didn't have to. And uh, Furbush has, uh, you know, since moving to the bullpen, his slider's gotten a lot better. He's got a pretty devastating breaking ball that lefties can't pick up very well. He's got a home run problem against righties. I just wouldn't let him face any. Uh, and Valario, I don't, I don't know if a lot of people have seen him because he's kind of new on the field this year. He throws 97 with a you know, really nasty slider, and he's just uh, destructive against right-handers. He's kind of like a new Octavio Dotel, just throws harder. Um, so I think with those two guys, I'm really happy in any kind of uh, left-on-left, right-on-right matchup. I know people have said, oh, well, those is pinch hit. Pretty sure the National League's not going to pinch hit for Joey Votto. So if I bring in Charlie for a bunch to face Votto, I'm getting the left-on-left matchup. Same thing with Dotel or Valario against Ryan Braun. If they were to pitch it for Ryan Braun, more power to him, especially in the fifth or sixth inning. Uh, you know, I'm happy to have those guys on the roster forcing the National League to pinch hit for one of their best players. You know, uh, it's interesting what you mentioned about Joe Nathan and, and Fernando Rodney, and I think that one of the things we're looking at here is is how you would um, optimize your roster, how you would utilize your roster um, if you're trying to win one game versus if you're trying to, um, you know, create a roster to win 162 or, you know, to win the, the, the largest portion of 162 games. A player like this year's edition of Fernando Rodney, um, you know, like the best version of Joe Nathan, you mentioned that they have, um, they're pretty good when they're on their game at um, limiting opposite-handed batters. That's the sort of thing that is nice to have over the course of a season because you can't just go, you can't play every matchup. Um, over the course of a season, but if it is one game, then you'll optimize. Yeah, exactly. I think in this situation where I know, you know, I've got one game to win, so I'm basically going with one starter and nine relievers, uh, there's no real reason to have to have one reliever face multiple batters, uh, especially off of the handed batters. So, you know, in real baseball, over 162 games, even you need a competitor of a full thing to come into the plate. Rodney and Nathan are good. If you're just going batter to batter, you don't really need that as much. I mean, I brought, David Robertson is, you know, one reliever who can go batter to batter. Uh, he may not be having quite as good a year as, as uh, Nathan or Rodney, but he's got a better track record. He's been a huge strikeout guy. So, you know, we're on the last night of the strikeout. I'm not sure that anyone else wanted to go down, regardless of who's coming to the plate. So, Robertson's my reliever out of the pen who can get anyone out. Um, I've also got Felix Hernandez sitting down there who can, you know, act as a similar Situation if he's, uh, you know, toward the end of the game, pitch till till harm fell off. Uh, but I think with Nathan and Rodney, you know, they are certainly absolutely good well. I just don't have the need for a right on left specialist because I'm just never going to let that situation occur if I don't have to. Okay, yeah, and uh, and I will also say you know, you've you've mentioned it a couple times. You have uh, Felix Hernandez playing 
uh, you, or um, fulfilling the role of what you call the last guy standing. Yeah. And the idea is that um, he's good enough to pitch multiple innings. Yeah. Uh, of course, he has an excellent changeup. I mean, he's got a number of uh, good secondary pitches, but he has an excellent changeup, uh, which should help him face lefties. Now, what's his role going to be? Yeah, so Felix is basically a closer slash pitch-till-the-game's-over guy. So, you know, in my uh, ideal situation, uh, I guess in the ninth inning, you know, there's uh, a couple of right-handers coming up. If I haven't already burned through all my right-handers, uh, you know, maybe I go with David Robertson, but most likely I've probably done enough matching up in order to get to that point where I just hand field the ball in the ninth inning and say, okay, you know, I've got a lead, uh, doesn't really matter who's coming out. Felix actually has zero platoon split this year. He has the exact same mobile against against righties and lefties. Um, he's the guy that I just hand the ball to and say, okay, uh, from here on out, you know, basically consider it like a start. I need 130 pitches from you. Uh, be as good as you can, you know, every inning. But, uh, you know, no one's ever going to get up behind you. Go. And Felix is kind of the guy who can, you know, both be really good for an inning at a time in order to close down a lead. Um, but if it's a tie game, uh, he's also a guy who can keep me in it and give me a chance Okay, uh, I'll interject here in saying that um, uh, some people might sense that uh, Dave Cameron uh, is having problems with phone connectivity. Uh, in fact, what is happening is that his processor is malfunctioning because of heat. Uh, it's a serious problem. Uh, Dave, are you there? Yeah, did you guys hear any of that? No, 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 but I was explaining to uh, the listening audience that your processor is uh, malfunctioning because of the heat. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, in terms of uh, offensively uh, speaking, uh, certainly the thing that uh, to my eyes I notice and that people will notice is that uh, you have a left-right uh, switch uh, going back and forth uh, throughout the, the entirety of your lineup. Uh, I mean, is that is that the the most notable difference uh, between uh, your effort to win just a single game um, versus uh, what you might do over the course of the season? Or that's I guess that's something you could just do over the course of a season. Well, I think if if you know that you know we're going to play a longer situation, and like so, I knew Wendy was going to start Steven Strasburg uh, against right-handed pitcher. Strasburg's got a little bit of platoon, but if I thought Strasburg was going to pitch five or six innings, I would have loaded up the lefties at the beginning. So. I wouldn't have gone left, right, left, right, left, right. I would have had, you know, four or five lefties in the first six or seven spots in the batting order and heard to get a lot of platoon advantages. I'm pretty sure Strasburg's only going through the lineup one time. Uh, you know, maybe not even that, depending on how aggressive she is with guys like, you know, R.A. Dickey and uh, Roldis Chapman. Um, so at that point, I don't necessarily care about maximizing at bats from lefties versus Strasburg. I'm trying to make sure she can't bring in our oldest Chapman to face three lefties in a row later. So uh, I think going left, right, left, right is something that works a lot better in this structure than it would over the course of a uh, full season um, when your starting pitcher is going to face, you know, the top of the order more times than not. Okay, yeah. And then uh, are there any, uh, in terms of your substitution patterns or, I don't know, pinch runners or anything like this, what would you be more likely to do if you're trying to win one game? Well, I think in this situation, you know, I've got Azubel Cabrera as my starting shortstop, who's not exactly the ideal defensive shortstop, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to be taking Azubel Cabrera out uh, probably somewhere in the 6th or 7th inning uh, after he gets his third at bat. Uh, 
you know, I'm almost certainly going to be pinch hitting for him at some point with Albert Pools in a high leverage situation. If that high leverage situation never comes to play after his turn at bat, uh, I'm probably just going to put Elvis Anderson in there for defensive purposes and save Pools as a pinch hitter for, you know, someone else at some other point. Uh, I'm, I'm planning on pinch hitting for Zubal Cabrera. I'm certainly going to take him out of the game for defensive reasons uh, later towards the end of the game. Um, and with David Ortiz, you know, I've got a big lumbering slugger who gets on base a lot, but is not a guy I want running the bases. So I've got Peter Burgess hanging around as a, you know, kind of high-leverage pinch runner. Um, and if Ortiz is going to get on base, then Burgess gives me a defensive replacement for Josh Hamilton. So, you know, I tried to take guys who gave me the opportunity to do multiple things and keep the flexibility open depending on what kind of game came about. Right. And you apparently have a wizard on your team, too. Is that right? I do. Ben Zobrist will be using lightning bolts in the dugout. Uh, this is a little-known skill, but Ben Zobrist practices magic. Yeah, that's true. I, it's, uh, <laughs> uh, it's a, uh, it is a little-known fact. Um, but, of course, the Tampa Bay Rays are a very entertaining team uh, all the way around. Yeah. Now, um, you are facing uh, – somehow you and Wendy Thurm have been named the managers of these respective teams. Right. Well, I, I named myself manager, and she volunteered. So. Oh, she right. There was that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess first of all, question: uh, Will you be wearing, will you be wearing a team uniform uh, like a major league manager does? I think I'll be just be wearing a fan dress shirt and nothing else. Oh, oh well, hello. <laughs> uh, this. I mean, there's nothing that that will intimidate the other team and at least distract them anyway. Yeah, right. It, although it might hurt, hurt television ratings. Um, uh, yeah. This might have to become a cable event, it appears. And then, uh, now as a as a manager, are there any sort of things? And I know I've talked about this uh, with actually with Dane before. Um, before um, his weekly appearances just descended into nothingness and just filth. Uh, we did occasionally talk about baseball, and one of the things that we would mention is because you know he he had spent a lot of time um, thinking about and watching Tony Larusa in action. And uh, I think I asked Dave or, or Dane at, at points to speculate on, you know, the effect that Tony Larusa could have on a ball club apart from just uh, on-field maneuvers, I guess. And this is something that we really can measure. But I'm curious as to what, if uh, you know, and, and this might be the difference between there. Might, uh, there's certainly some difference in in this case um, between a, a season's worth of games and a single game. But what what sort of things? would you think a manager does that may or may not ultimately lead to wins? Um, you know, I think the motivation is one of those things that we certainly don't have any kind of handle on. I think there are players we've seen in baseball that uh, are, are, they need some motivation, external motivation. They're not going to find motivation to live up to their own abilities on, on their own. I think we saw Kevin Long a couple weeks ago make some comment about how Melky Cabrera uh, if he had worked as hard as he is now, would still be a Yankee. And Melky Cabrera went through several franchises. Uh, the Braves had the same thing where they, you know, saw a talented player that they thought could become a nice, nice fit for them, and he was below replacement level in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, they got rid of him, and apparently somewhere along the line he got the wake-up call and said, hey, maybe I should work a little harder, and now he's turned into a pretty nice player. And so, um, you know, I think there's some kind of motivational factor that some managers have better than others. Uh, what it is, I have no idea. Uh, I'm pretty sure I don't possess it. But I would imagine that some do, and I think if you can figure out how to find a manager who can take talented kids who might otherwise not work hard enough to become quality players, and he can turn those into quality players, then that's a valuable piece of that I guess. Yeah, well, I was also thinking about this, too. Uh, of course, I was in uh, Minneapolis um, this past weekend 
for Saber 42. And I was uh, just thinking it's like, especially it was like, really hot in Minneapolis, and the, and the the Twins and Royals played a doubleheader. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, this is a thing that happens at some point along the way, especially if you're like, well, on either of those teams, neither of them are playing particularly well. Um, although I guess the Royals have been better um, in terms of their record, uh, you know, since mid-April or whatever. Uh, the Twins, though, certainly, uh, they're not what you call uh, a lock for the playoffs. And yet they still have to play all these games. Uh, I would assume that, you know, with the exception of personal pride, you don't always necessarily feel um, entirely motivated. You know, you know that you're not fighting for a playoff spot, really. And then what else is there to do? So you're still, But you're still playing. You still have to go out every day. Right. I mean, I think there's no doubt that some players uh, just have kind of a um, mentality that they're, you know, making millions of dollars, and no matter what the record is, they're going to go out and bust their butt. And, you know, we've seen some guys who are harder workers than others. I think there are guys in baseball who respond to external factors. They don't have something inside of them that is compelling them to work as hard as possible every day, no matter what's going on around them. Uh, and those are the guys that I think, you know, you need exterior motivators for, whether it's a coach, whether it's incentives in their contract, whether it's, you know, uh, whatever it is, someone else has to provide motivation for those guys. And I think they're probably the majority rather than the minority. I think the guys who are going to work hard no matter whether it's 120 degrees and they're in last place or if they're, you know, first place playing in the dome, those guys are probably the exception to the rule. Right, right. Um and now, uh, is there anything specifically about uh, Wendy Thurm's roster um, that you see as something you can exploit? Um, well, I did, I, I did notice she doesn't have a backup shortstop, so uh, pinch hitting for Jed Lowry is out, which, you know, Jed Lowry's a nice hitter for a shortstop, but he's maybe not a guy that, you know, uh, there's better national hitters than Jed Lowry, certainly. So uh, I like the fact that I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, uh, someone coming off the bench to pinch hit for Jed Lowry in a critical situation, that's nice. Um, you know, I think that there's some nice players on our team that I'm okay pitching to. Martin Prado, if he gets in the game, you know, I'm totally okay with Martin Prado coming up to bat. Uh, as good a year as he's having, not a guy that scares me a lot. So uh, I think, you know, her bench is okay, but not fantastic, and I'm, I'm happy to let her use it, uh, especially if she's taking some of her really good stars out of the game in order to get them in. Yeah, I'm curious that Zach Grinke's on her team, though. Uh, um, he's not. He's not an all-star. <laughs> Zach Greinke's not an all-star, right? Yeah. She took all these. Jason Hayward's not an all-star. She took a lot of crappy players. Yeah, 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 yeah. She didn't take crappy players. She took players that uh, you know maybe didn't make it in because of the silliness of the current all-star uh, selection yeah. process. Well, I will submit this: is that I'm glad I'm not the one who is in charge of the rules of the all-star game because uh, it, it seems like it's a great way um, to invite. Uh, the bile of uh, of millions, really. Well, I think you do that in your current job. Uh, I would, yeah, not millions yet. Uh, there are probably people who um, don't care for me. They just don't know it yet. Um, right. There yeah. are people who hate you in advance. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um. Let's see. Oh well, I, this is a not not really related at all. But I I was wondering to what degree you felt vindicated. Uh, last Thursday, maybe must be last Thursday. I think you um, you posted um, you posted with regard to Trevor Bauer's debut, but not exclusively Trevor De- Bauer's debut. Uh, you also noted at the same time that perhaps Andrew Kashner's uh, first start following his recall 
uh, from the minor leagues where he was being stretched out uh, might be or ought to be just as notable, if not more so, at least in terms of uh, both their near- and long-term futures are concerned. Yeah, I mean, obviously one start's not going to change anyone's opinion, nor should it. I mean, Andrew Cashner was facing the Astros, uh, you know, and the uh, uh, Trevor Bowers pitching in 700-degree weather in Atlanta, So, uh, and Bowers pitching on three days rest. So this is not a situation where uh, I'm going to say, ha-ha, I told you so, but hopefully the fact that Cashner carried a no-hitter through six innings uh, and, you know, looked really good with his fastball and changeup, uh, kind of enforces the point that I was making that Cashner is a guy who's kind of flying under the radar a little bit for whatever reason. Uh, my guess is it's because he's pitching for the Padres and no one cares about the Padres. Um, but this is a guy who legit throws 100 miles an hour as a starter and has a devastating changeup. Uh, you know, he's shown the ability to get ground balls. He can miss bats. Uh, his command isn't great, but uh, neither is Trevor Bowers. And I guess that's kind of what I was trying to highlight, is if you're looking for a starting pitcher with you know, premium stuff, strikeout ability, uh, and shaky command, uh, Kashner is probably a more polished version of that pitcher than Bauer is right now. If Bauer is going to be all the hype because, you know, I mean, Bauer is, you know, first-round pick last year, a high first-round pick, and he's a really interesting character. I just think that, you know, from a statistical perspective, uh, a lot of times we try and ignore personality and just focus on what they can do on the field, and if we're taking personality and Twitter usage and those something rather than the package, uh, I think, you know, you'd probably rather have Kashner than Bauer right now. Well, I... I think I do think that uh, sabermetrically oriented readers, fans, what, it's personality is one quality. But if the personality, if if it manifests itself in an interest in pitch effects and advanced data, that's a little bit different. That's a specific sort of personality. Right, but I mean, Max Scherzer has openly talked about using pitch effects data. Uh, you know, he's into all this kind of stuff. Glenn Perkins reads Fangraphs every day. There's you know a decent amount of pitchers out there who are into this kind of stuff and talk about it and they're on Twitter and they don't get anywhere near the amount of notoriety that Bauer's gotten. Right. I just say, uh, you know, not, not that I'm against Trevor Bauer or I'm rooting for him to fail. I just find the the free Trevor Bauer movement a little silly. <laughs> and I think, like, you know, hopefully we can recognize that this is a good pitching prospect who's got some command problems. And, uh, you know, his stuff's good, but uh, the guy who throws 92 to 95 uh, and gets a lot of fly balls. And so, you know, is he a special pitching prospect? I, I don't really think he is. Um, well, I don't, you know. I, yeah. Now, Kesher, you said is is touching a hundred uh, at this point. That's not something he's always done. No, when he, I mean Kesher is always thrown hard. He's he's never been a low velocity guy. But when he was coming up through the Cup system, he was more mid nineties. Uh, you know, he'd hit ninety eight occasionally. Uh, they moved him to the bullpen, and then he was ninety six to ninety nine. Uh, but then they traded him to San Diego. He went to the Arizona Fall League, and hundred became a regular thing for him. And then he showed up in spring training this year, and it was nah hundred lame. Here's 102, and uh, he's a guy who's now basically the right-handed version of a role with Chapman. His fastball out of the bullpen was sitting 99 regularly, uh, and even moving him back into the rotation, he's 96 to 100. Uh, whether he can sustain that and stay healthy, you know, that's an open question. But there's no doubt right now Andrew Kashner is in the mix for hardest-throwing starting pitcher in baseball. Right, and generally if you, if you sort by fastball velocity, uh, you know, uh, on our pitch effects leaderboards, that's going to be a l- pretty good list of players, uh, a group of players at the top of that list. Yeah, I think, you know, the guys who throw, you know, somewhere near as hard as Kashner as starting pitchers are Steven Strasburg, David Price, uh, you know, I think uh, that might be it. There, are, there aren't very many guys who consistently, uh, Justin Verlander, obviously, uh, guys who throw 95 plus and can hold it as starting pitchers are pretty rare and pretty awesome. Yeah, do you know who actually I saw uh, last night, speaking of 
high velocity this may interest you less but uh i went to a madison mallards game on uh sunday night and will lamarche who is a uh is going to be a he, he was pitching uh in, in Juco, uh, juco team he's uh, signed with lsu um he pitches for the mallards he throws uh he sits at 97 uh maybe not as a starter as a reliever which is a thing that happens but um uh, that's pretty interesting to see close up. Yeah. yeah. I think every time you're that close to that velocity, it, it's eye-opening when you realize just how hard that must be to hit. Yes. Uh, it, did, it, it did appear as though the other college-age batters uh, were having some, some difficulty with it. Plus, he backed it up with like a, a 90 or like a 78-mile-per-hour curveball. Um, ah, nice. That looked, uh, it looked like it was inert um, relative to the fastball. So you, you see the uh, the difference between those. You know, I think uh, people probably missed this this weekend, but I think on Saturday night, Vicente Padilla was pitching in relief for the Red Sox. And Padilla throws pretty hard, 95, 96 out of the bullpen. Uh, at one point, he threw a 50-mile-an-hour curveball. 50, 5 uh, So he has to get 45-mile-an-hour separation between velocities on pitches. The 50-mile-an-hour the curveball, by the way, only went about 50 feet, bounced in the dirt, was taken for a ball. But it was pretty funny to see 96, 96, 95, 50. Actually, Jackie Moore, uh, who writes for us in Disciples of Euchre, and also apparently CBS Sports, their MLB Rumors uh, website, which is new today, um, he was telling me uh, uh, this weekend about a contest. I don't know if it's like a tacit contest or an actual thing that's occurring uh, between Zach Greinke, Sean Markham, and Randy Wolf to see who can throw the slowest curveball in a game. I would bet on Randy Wolf, I think. Well, Randy Wolf, it comes to him naturally, this the low curveball. Yeah. Uh, although I know that Granky used to throw like a borderline. Like a low 60s one, right? Yeah, yeah right, yeah. Um, anyway, that Padilla pitch sounds interesting. I've actually just, uh, just before you and I talked today, uh, I was making some gifts of A.J. Griffin's curveball. Yes. Uh, which he throws. He throws that in the high 60s. Um, but it must be some sort of arm action because I think. He threw 13 of them, and five of them were called strikes. Um, Elvis Andrus, Mike Napoli, uh, Leonis Martin, they all looked decidedly uninterested in offering at it. Right. Well, I think we've seen like these big slow curveballs. Like, they, they have very high called strike percentages. They have like zero swinging strike percentages. When batters decide to swing, they hit them very, very far. But it's totally a pitch that will... Uh, be designed to catch a batter off balance and just confuse them. And so, uh, you know, like Tom Wilhelmson, uh, throws a 77 mile an hour curveball after throwing a 96 mile an hour fastball, and he gets a ton of called strikes with it. Uh, the, the fastballs is swinging this pitch, the, the curveballs is swinging, or is staring, look at it pitch. And I think, you know, we've seen with these slow curveballs, it's really more of a deception, uh, in the, batter's mind than it is trying to get them to swing over the top of it. It's just a pitch where, hey, you're going to think this is out of the strike zone, and then you're going to get bored by the time it gets to the plate. Do you have a sense of uh, what the average uh, called strike rate is in the major leagues and what it might be for curveballs? Well, not on the spot. I'm sure that's something we could query, but that would make for really boring podcasting as if we were running a query while listeners waited. Yeah, let's not do that. Um, One thing I'll say is that I appreciate you making an appearance today on Fangraphs Audio, despite the fact that it's a million degrees and clearly it's affected your uh, your processor. Yeah, you know, actually today is not as oppressive as the weekend. So I will say the southeast has only been horrible for the last four days, but I'm happy to be escaping to the great northwest on Wednesday and we'll be leaving this 100-degree and humidity stuff behind. 
Right, and to anyone who's made it this far, to the to the dozens of you who've made it this far, um, this episode of the podcast, I think uh, there will be uh, the podcast will be sparsely um, released over the course of the next week or two um, because there because of various vacations, etc. Right, I think that there will be much rejoicing from the listeners on that end. That's generally that's generally what I've sensed. Well, okay. Well, g- uh, good job, Cameron. Uh, too bad I didn't see you at Saber this past weekend, but uh, someday. Someday, yes. I think we might run into each other in Boston next month. Uh, yes, that's a that's a true fact. That's a true fact. All right. Yeah. Well, uh, that is Dave Cameron. He has assembled and uh, adequately managed the uh, AL All Star team, again of his own choosing. Uh, we don't know if he's beaten. Uh, we don't know if he's beaten Wendy Thurm. Um, Probably went in an argument. She has a lo- lawyer degree. But she has, yeah, right, law skills. I think we had talked about maybe putting this in some kind of simulation engine, uh, but, you know, it's a little hard because no one has uh, up-to-date, uh, you know, projections that are going to take into account some of these, like, you know, a guy like Brian Villarreal or Charlie Furbush, they're going to look terrible by projections, right. when in reality they've, they've made some changes that, you know, from a matchup perspective would actually make them okay. So, um you know, might, might have to wait until after the season uh, to to run the sim and see who would win out. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, the, the listening audience, in addition to myself, are on pins and needles waiting for that to happen. Yes. Yeah. Right. That does sound painful. All right. That is Dave Cameron. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.